0: What's up everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell and Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com. Cordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Michael Osborne.
1: Design can create brands loyalty, it can create um, new consumers. What we do essentially is sell things as graphic designers. My students don't like to hear that, but that that's really the truth. This
0: is another episode of our innovation and leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founder started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Michael, thanks for being on the show.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Well, um... I was pretty excited uh, when Amy Stellhorn was telling me about all the things that you've accomplished. I, uh, I, you know, in my art school days previous to getting into finance, I had uh, the pleasure of learning from a number of art school grads and, uh, and I know that you're an alumni there and that had a big influence on your career. Um, Starting off there, can you tell people a bit about why art center is such a a unique thing in the art world?
1: Well, it's, it's uh, it's you know, it has a reputation of being amongst the three, if not number one, design, discipline schools in in the country, and disciplines meaning, that, you know, a lot, of, most cars that you see on the road, even now, were probably designed by an art center grad. There's famous photographers and illustrators and painters and. A, a, you know, just a ton of graphic designers that I could name that went that went to Art Center. It's one of those schools that, if you could pick the very highest educational institution in your field, in this case, graphic design, that's where you would go.
0: It's like the Harvard and Business Some, School of of design, it,
1: right? It kind it kind of, it kind, of yeah, it kind of is like that. And little old me, somehow on the world, I wound up there. <laughs>
0: Well, I love it. I mean, I know now that that you teach, um, and we definitely want to talk about keeping a business alive for thirty plus years that you've done. I mean, so many businesses don't make it to five years. We want to hear those kind of stories. Um, but uh, I think an, another fun thing maybe to, to start off is, is um, you know, being in the Bay Area and and getting uh, a business going previous to Silicon Valley becoming what it is. Um, can you tell people a little bit about the story of, of Atari and and your first freelance client and, and before everybody knew, you know, before they were the, the big name in shaping computer world that they became?
1: Sure, sure. That was, you know, I was at my first job here in, in Palo Alto after I graduated from Art Center in 1978, and I had been there for three years and was getting a little... And along comes this uh, freelance job for Atari, who had just come out with this this game called Pong. And there were no computers yet, of course, and so it was cool. You could look at the screen, and this ball would come across, and you move the little bar, and it hits it, and it ricochets across the screen. (laughs) Very advanced, Very advanced And comes back to you, and then you hit it again, and everybody's like gathers around, like we're inventing fire or something. And uh, and I got to do design and produce all the collateral materials and sales materials for, for Atari at the time. So I left the company and was and this was my first big uh, freelance job.
0: And um, you know, thinking about this, and what are we talking? Maybe eighty two, eighty three at the time.
1: Uh, well, I started my own business officially in nineteen eighty one. So it must have been around then.
0: Eighty one. Okay. Well. Yeah.
1: yeah probably early 81.
0: I think, I think it was a few years after that, uh, maybe five years after that, my, my mom bought my brother and I an Atari and like an Apple box full of games, maybe 200 games from some garage sale once. So you, you had a big influence on my brother and I every Saturday morning after, you know, after, uh, what became WWF wrestling, but after wrestling and Saturday morning cartoons, it was <laughs> as much Atari as we could get in before our mom told us we had to turn it off.
1: So, uh, you, well, you were an early, early adopter.
0: <laughs> well, um, thinking about, uh, you know, the, the humble beginnings there up to the work you've done for the targets and Walmarts and Nordstrom's of the world and Jack Daniels and EA sports and, and these big worlds, um, where, where did this, uh, well, let's, let's start this today. We've got so many entrepreneurs who are trying to get something that will stand out, that will get attention, that they can grow their business, um, You've got such a passion for product design. What do you feel like are kind of the rookie mistakes when you, when you meet with somebody and they, they really haven't understood the craft of product design. What are some of the, the very first things you're helping educate a client on?
1: Well, product design. I assume you mean pa- pa- yeah,
0: packaging design. design,
1: package design. Well, this, this is something I tell my students they, they don't like to hear this, but, um, the bottom line is, when you're a graphic designer, your job is really to sell stuff. It doesn't matter <laughs> what part of graphic design you work in. Um, if you're designing an annual report, you're certainly supporting an industry, a company in an industry that is selling something. In my case, package design, specifically food and beverage packaging is exactly that, it's probably the highest form of designing for sales. And that, that is, um, it's become, a, you know, not only an art, but it, it's a science. These big companies do so much research, just tons of research behind every little move on a brand. And there's been some historical magnific- magnificent screw-ups, and uh, package redesign because the it's in thorough or, uh or incomplete research. So that that's part of it. And that tends to be with the bigger companies. They know exactly who their target the target consumer, the demographics. they know what the competitors are doing. You know, you get a design brief that's half an inch thick. Um, so there, there are a lot of parameters designing for, uh, food and beverage packaging for you know cons- consumer packaged goods, uh, especially the bigger companies, the ones you named, they know exactly what to do and what not to do. So then it's our job to turn that information into something you can see and hold uh, and put on a shelf and accomplish their objectives. That that is the tricky part. So the, you know, doing that. The reason you look at the, my website or the, the work or wherever and um, see certain p- projects that have been successful, and this is true with any design firm, is, is that somehow we've managed to to navigate you know, all the rules and that get through the research, get through the layers there of of uh, administration, bureaucracy, politics, get through, um, you know, that m- massive amount of, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a gateway, it's, it's, it's doors, it's a line of doors you have to get through to get a product on the shelf. Now, doing great design after a while is relatively easy. Getting great design on the shelf is not easy. And all you have to do is just go to the store to, to witness that. Um, you know.
0: um, well, I mean, now you've done these major accounts and, and obviously three decades plus in the business, um, very well respected within AIGA and and teaching nowadays. Um, when you think about some of those early days, I, I was happy when you said, you know, the first piece of advice you have for any business owner is... <laughs> talking about how when you're getting the work, doing the work, paying the bills, he says <laughs> you should only make the the same mistake once, but when you realize you're making it more than once, you need to get an accountant or you need to get a bookkeeper
1: That's the number one piece of advice somebody starting a business, specifically graphic designers who are notorious for being bad business people. <laughs> Job one is to get a good accountant
0: yeah, I liked your I really liked your your taxes story.
1: <laughs> which one
0: about uh missing taxes but paying multiples on the other years and um, a
1: pass. It, it's just crazy those it, it early days i you know again I, I didn't start a business intentionally it just sort of happened after the atari job and uh, it was pre-computer so the work was rather labor intensive so i would try to get a project and i would do the project, and then I would build the project, and then I would pay my bills, and then, you know, it was cyclical. It just kept happening, and I would I screwed up every part of it more than once. Um, I would I would pay my taxes twice, two or three times, and other times I would just totally forget. And I got an audit about my third year, and they just felt so sorry for me. <laughs> But you paid triple them. the
0: one time and not at all the next.
1: Yeah, there's just guy. You totally forgot this year, but you know what? Last year you paid twice. They just, they just. I had to hire an attorney, and they were all laughing at me. It was they, you know. They knew I wasn't trying to get away with something, so that that's the first thing: get a good law, get a good an accountant, and 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 become acquainted with at least become acquainted with an attorney. That that way, you know, the right side of my brain is pretty relatively full. The other side, there's an echo, and a lot of designers are like that. Just get help doing the things that you that you can't do. You know? Yeah.
0: Um, so when you think about the role of design in business, um, you know, you've been you've been in the Bay Area as it's had this you know rapid rise of the the computer era and, and all the tech, um, and there's such an emphasis, I think, in the business news a lot about you need to make a better thing. You know, the product needs to be better. Um, and what I feel like gets left out a lot is but if you haven't done pe- something to attract people to find out about the product or to stop and take a look at it, they're not going to find out. Like, if they don't know it exists, they can't find out it's better. Um, do you have anything that you would share as far as, uh, you, you know, your own personal reasons about why the importance of design? For business as opposed to just the aesthetic pleasure of it
1: well what what you just described is exactly what keeps design firms in business is, is we we wind up on a on a redesign program for example if it's a wine label or whatever if they, they typically would have maybe let's just say that the product is a, a great product um done this with spirits and wine and Foods where there really is a good company, solid, authentic company producing uh, top quality products with terrible packaging. So you have to get the consumers' attention before they'll pick up the package, unless they know you. And that—that that is uh, on a redesign program. That's exactly what keeps us in business. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, you know, I'm thinking about. Entrepreneurs who might be listening to the show today, and and maybe their company hasn't grown to the size where they can afford a design firm like yours, and they're they're trying to do stuff themselves. When you think about your students, you know, um, and am I correct that you're you're teaching? You have taught at Berkeley, but you're teaching at Academy of Art right now.
1: Uh, yeah, this is my twenty sixth year at the Academy of Art uh, University in San Francisco. I teach. We have four levels of packaging. I teach packaging four for all these years right before they graduate. So I really, I really get them. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, <laughs> I'll say, uh, probably my most influential, uh, professor, um, Jeff Carter. I mean, he, w- he's just a professional artist that taught one Friday class, uh, art center grad. That's the only other school that he recommended to us <laughs> besides art center. The only other one he would like think about recommending was, <laughs> was Academy. Um, when you think about what you're teaching those kids, that probably every business owner should learn, if if they want their their packaging to be attractive, what what's a what's a key principle that you feel like the beginners mess up? Is it not enough white space? Is it what, what's just one design principle that you think could be helpful for the non designers out there?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if you if you strip this down and go back to to you know the very first meeting or the very beginning of the project. Um, of course, the most important thing is to, to solve the problem based on the problem. It's the solution isn't something that's just out there floating around, or it's it's not a personal like or some, a style or um, what have you. So solving the solving the problem and creating a successful package for me is food and beverage. Is meeting the client's goals and objectives, and accomplishing what it is that they need to accomplish, which is in concrete. Believe me, these people know what they're doing. They know what the competitors are doing, and uh, to, to the trick is to solve those those communication problems through design at the highest level possible, and somehow get it on the shelf. And that's that's when design becomes. Um, it, design becomes commerce design can create brand loyalty can create, um, new consumers. What we do essentially is sell things as graphic designers. My students don't like to hear that, but that's, that's really the truth. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. How about from the other side, you know, um, having friends in the design industry, you know, I know about those clients that are the pain in the butt and that certainly <laughs> isn't motivating their designers to get them their best work. If you were talking to business owners about how they can be a good partner to the design firm that they're trying to get the best work from, what kind of advice would you would you have for for clients that are engaging creatives?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is this uh, used to be more of a problem than it is now. Um, we you know the design industry has gained the respect. It's been proven over and over uh, that that design good design is good business. That's all there is to it. Let I me mean, ask Steve Jobs if you can. Which by the way, I love his take on doing research, consumer research, which was we don't do research. If we think it's cool, it's cool. <laughs> and <laughs> there there's one point of view. But but for for um, what would I tell a, a client to ha- how to yeah, behave business, with the yeah business with the owners designer? that might
2: be
0: business owners that might be mm-hmm. listening today? They're going to engage a design firm. What advice would you, you give them about getting the best work out of their design firm and, and working with them well?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would remind them that they, they engaged this designer for a reason. Or they've seen their work or they have experience in a particular kind of work. Um, so the number one thing you can do is let them do their job. Let Trust them. How can they trust you if you don't trust them? And um, a good designer will see that, understand that, respect it, and then bend over backwards for that client. A client, a good client is is number one. lets you do your job, understands what you're doing, and then let actually let you do it. I mean, it's sort of akin to you hire a doctor and then you start telling the doctor what to do. I mean, you just <laughs> yeah, that would be my first, Yeah, you know, sure. that's a fundamental first, first thing.
0: No, and I think for a lot um, of leaders, it, it's hard to stop micromanaging. It's hard to, it's hard to step back and trust the professionals sometimes, huh? But if they don't, they don't is, get as good it, a product.
1: It, it, it is in part, in, you know, if, you, if, if if I hold my hands up and go, this is my job as a graphic designer, about three quarters of it from here over to here three, is something other than design, it's you know it's managing people it's it's managing clients it's be, it's being a therapist it's being <laughs> it's a lot of other things and part part of that is uh, educating um, clients even sophisticated clients in terms of um, being objective as opposed to subjective the I don't like red thing it it just um, is not Is not helpful. That's not where answers come from. For example, I had a I did a project for a landscape architect one time. His um, identity program, and to, you know, of course, it's, it's nature. I think I did something with tree, trees, or you know, I wouldn't use green. Green. What do you think? You know, nature colors, earth colors, and then he came back and told me that we couldn't use green because his wife doesn't like green. And, um, <laughs> I mean, the response to that is, you, you don't like to say this, but it really doesn't matter what your wife thinks. It doesn't matter what she likes. <laughs> Tell you know, my students, even my students, they, they use the word like is not allowed in my classroom. I, it doesn't matter if you like that typeface. Tell me why you're using it. This is a landscape company. Green is appropriate for your clientele, for your identity that they're going to see. So that that's another thing to get through to young or, or to, you know, clients working with the designer is uh, to, to drop the subjectivity is that we are trained to solve problems and every single aspect of it needs to have a reason. And the reason has nothing to do with what I like or don't like. I need to be able to explain what we're doing and why. Uh, and it is all based, it all goes back to being based on their communication uh, problem, solving a problem. You can't solve a problem unless... Uh, you know what it looks like. So at the very beginning you, you, we need to learn everything about the project that, that the, the client, we need to know as much as the client does, is, you know, as much as possible. Then you can solve their problem and it's not based on what you like, what you don't like, what is, is a style. My students try to tell me that they have a certain style which means you design packaging for band aids the same way you would design packaging for, for you know, iced tea. It's just two different. You know what I mean? It's just two completely different problems with different solutions for different reasons. And as a graphic designer, unless you're Michael Vanderbyl or, or Michael Schwab or somebody with a specific style that clients go to for that style you don't have a style. What mm-hmm. you have is answers based on problems.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things I'm really interested in, um, that you talked about was this, was how, how much of what you do is not the design work and, and specifically the people part. You know, I'm thinking about yep. the story you were telling me about <laughs> $19 billion electronic arts and, and designing that EA sports logo that ends up becoming the the logo for all electronic arts. and, but um, being at that first John Madden, working on the John Madden game, the first one, 1987 or whatever, and being at that shoot and, and recognizing a people problem that was happening and, and just showing up and <laughs> talking to coach and taking care of the problem. Can you can you tell people a bit about yeah. what was going on and what you decided to do to help solve the problem?
1: Um, well, this is another thing they don't teach you in school is that the big part of your job is, is – um, and I guess any sales job, I mean, any job, I suppose that there's such a huge people factor involved. You have to be able to get along with people, to work with people, to understand their point of view, and yet get your point of view across without being acerbic or, or stubborn or, um, and a good client will, you know, there's 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 a dialogue that is constructive, right? So being, <laughs> learning how to have, and believe me, in the beginning, uh, this was not the case. This is something that I've had to learn another thing that I've had to learn the hard way, is is how to manage a process and the people in the process and allowed myself to be managed at the same time. So this, this was way early on. We had this photo shoot with John Madden and you know he's he was kind of a big bully during the thing it's John Madden what do you think and uh, everybody was scared of him and so I just started to, you know being art director and going calling him coach like come on coach that come over here we're going to uh, we're going to get you in this shirt and you're going to point at the thing and he's like okay okay you got 5 minutes for this i get to keep this shirt right <laughs> like you, yeah, co- I said, yeah, coach. You can keep that shirt. We got some other shirts for you. So can we come, come right over here? So why don't we do it over here? Well, the light's better over here. Let's just try this one time. Then we'll go over there. And you know, it just came natural to me. I played football. I I, I love him in the first place. So I just tried to to be friends with him. <laughs> what else are you gonna do? Yeah. Uh, well. I mean,
0: we're, I want to talk about the suitcase computer in a minute, but, um, I imagine it's been interesting for you working on a game like that and being there right at the beginning. And then the thing goes on, you know, or, that series sells a hundred million copies of that game over the years and, and grosses $4 billion. Uh, and you actually are there at the beginning, um, mm-hmm. with, with the, l- let's talk about the Osborne computers. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about yeah, how yeah. you got that project.
1: Well, that was a crazy thing. It was probably it was my first job out of college. Nineteen I uh, graduated in 70, 1978, So this was probably 1980, 1981 at the latest. And we got this job um, from a referral from a, an advertising agency from a client called Osborne Computer, and nobody knew what this was. And my boss said, "Your name's Osborne, so you're working on it." and what it was was this British guy, Adam Osborne had invented uh, the very first portable computer. Not, not, not a lot of people know this but it was like uh, it was kind of as, like a sewing machine it had a handle on it and you carried it they have an ad, I have I bought an ad on eBay that, that it boasts that the computer only weighs 24 pounds <laughs> so there's a, this guy walking with this computer and he, I'm sure he's just straining to s- stay up straight um, but it opens up you know it sits on the table the screen was about four inches by five inches um, and it was like magic I mean nobody knew what this thing was we didn't know I, all I knew was is I had the late 70s design, right design <laughs> design a computer logo um, and yeah that's that, that's that's what we did, and he he was starting to gain success. The Silicon Valley was just starting up. Some of the chip makers. Um, he came out with the Osborne two and started showing the prototype for it and selling it. On you know, in the middle of the first year of the first one, so everybody stopped buying the first one, which ended the funding for the second one. So that was, it was a major strategy screw up and. Uh, actually had a nickname for a while it was the Osborne Effect and it's part of the reason why Apple and other companies did, do not release information, pictures, anything on the next set of, the next web of products until right up before a release date. And that,
0: to not slow down the sales? I
1: have, and- I, <laughs> I have some of those materials that that sense, I mean, like you say, when you when you, you're working on these on these things, EA Sports logo, nobody knows if it's going to be there even next year. We don't know. It's just you're just doing a job, and then over the years you look back and go, "Whoa, I designed the logo for the very first portable computer, and nobody knows about it." It's you- one of those things that just you know what I mean. Have yeah, you yeah. ever heard of that?
2: <laughs> so.
0: Well, I remember when my dad had one of these suitcase computers when I was a little kid with the black and green screen, right? Um, yeah. But uh, what do you remember what was going your, through your head? You know, it's the late 70s. You're not working on a computer. You're seeing this thing. When you're deciding the identity for it back then, do you remember the influences or anything that was going through your head of, like, why, why you made it the way you made it, the logo and all that?
1: Well, it had uh, something to do with... Uh, creating a symbol based on the O, the first letter of Osborne, and I knew that um, information moved quickly through a computer and onto the screen of this computer. The screen was about four inches by five inches, and that was about it, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what that, that's what that logo is, was based on.
0: That's fun. Well um, yeah. fast forward and you you know your, your works you know it's in the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and, and these different places but um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the the Smithsonian and, and kind of your passion for stamps and stamp design? You
1: well know, this this is uh, when I give talks or uh, I always talk about this project as if its one it's one of those things that floats out of heaven and lands on your desk. And and you know, again you just don't know you just don't know it when it happens. It's just something that landed on your desk and you pick it up and start. So one day I get a I come back from lunch and my receptionist says, Michael, this lady from the post office called and wants you to call her back and I just threw the message away and next day I come back from lunch. And Kim says, Michael, it's that lady from the post office again. And she said that she, that you really need to take this call. So, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to jail. We didn't pay our meter. I did something. To, you know, <laughs>
0: postal fraud.
1: What, what the hell happening? So I, I called her, Zethel Kessler. And she's uh, one of the four art directors for uh, the postal service who are responsible for the stamp design and production. And I called her, and she said, this is Ethel Kessler from Postal Service, not the post office, right? And I said, yes. And she goes, well, I I think I'm about to make your day. I'm glad you called me back. I said, yes. (laughs) He said, how would you like to design the next love stamp? And you know, fall to the floor, try to stand back up, and you think that somebody's messing with you, right? Because I had always wanted to design a stamp, and that's how it started. So she, um, it was throughout that one phone call, and Ethel Kessler, and what happened is I, I was, at the time, I had just started my letterpress shop, one hard press, and uh, started doing Valentine cards. I, I would do holiday cards, and nobody'd see it. You know, everybody gets a thousand holiday cards. So I started doing Valentine cards, and I was sending them to the director of exhibits at the Smithsonian Postal Museum. You know, she has nothing to do whatsoever with with stamp design. But she knew uh, Ethel who was friends with Ethel Kessler, the art director, and she passed some of my cards to her, the Valentine cards, and that's what prompted you know Ethel to make the phone call. It's always it's it's my story about it. Just do something. If you do something, something will happen. If you don't do anything, you know nothing's gonna happen. It's just dumb luck. And so Ethel, over the years, I think it's the last fifteen years or so, I've done ten or twelve stamps for her. We're good friends now, and uh, they're just, you know they don't pay a lot of money, but it's a it's a lot of fun. It's it's great getting uh, mail with your stamps on it. And <laughs> yeah, it's just a cool thing. T-
0: tell us about the tell us about the because you said you you like to keep the funny mail that you get that has your stamp on it, and you, you got one yesterday.
1: I I have a box full of envelopes with my stamps on it. And I can only keep the ones that are uh, humorous in some regard. So just yesterday I got—I'll be sixty-five this month, May twenty-fifth. So I get a piece of mail yesterday. It has my stamp on it, which is the first thing that catches my eye, and then I see that it's from a company that is offering a free cremation service. <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, I wanted to throw it away immediately, but I kept it. It's just hilarious. T- today, I didn't tell you this, today I got one with uh, one of my pre-sorted standard eagle stamps on it. was for uh, a medical convention gourmet dinner for people with um, chronic, what's the name of that disease, neuropathy it's chronic pain throughout your whole body, right? So I opened this invitation, and you can tell that they've designed it for elderly people. that The type is all of like sixty four point type; it's huge. <laughs> Everything, not a whole lot of information, took up the entire inside of this five by seven card for free gourmet dinner for a neuropathy convention. It's got my stamp on it.
0: Got your name on it. It's very funny. Too funny. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and tell me. So now, it, it ended up at the Smithsonian. The the exhibit that ended up at the Smithsonian. Um, it was supposed to go there for for only one year, right?
1: Yes, the, the Alphabet Lally exhibits uh, the, um, went for one year. It took us ten years to get them to uh, say yes to to uh, producing the exhibit. And it went for one year and stayed seven seven years at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. Yeah. It was very successful. It was, a, it was probably the most elaborate, uh, deepest subject matter and funnest project that I've ever worked on. Um,
0: yeah. You know, you mentioned that, um, it, you know, it's not like they pay a ton, but, uh, but you have kind of a passion for this. Do you have any thought about You know, how for entrepreneurs or business owners, like it's so easy to be driven by the numbers, but quality of life can come by doing the things that matter sometimes when the numbers aren't there.
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, I was taught somewhere along the line, and I always tell my students, um, you know, when you start your business in the beginning, when you get a job, you don't have to worry about this. But later on, I was, I learned somewhere that there were three factors to um, a a new project that to consider. One is that it's a, just a mouthwatering, wonderful design project like stamps, like packaging for a Museum of Modern Art, you know, those kind of things. Just a great project. The second one is the, the people um, working with, like you say, you know, how what makes a good client and working with those kind of people that know how to be a good client. They're great people. And the third is, the, the, you know, of course, the budget. The designer tells you they're not really interested in making money, they're lying. So, <laughs> uh, um, you know, is it a is good budget? Is it going to be worth spending my time on instead of spending it on another project? Because it, it's going to take up, you know, space. Um, and if you don't get two out of those three things, it's... You know, it's a slight slight risk. If you get one out of those three things, it's because you you don't, you know, you're desperate or it's an an investment um, into an area that you want to get into. For example, if you have great people to work with and it's a great project, it's a wine label or whatever, but they hardly have any money. And I want to get into the wine label design business. Then I do, then I'm going to do the project. I got two out of three, and investing the money into getting a project and, and package design. It's uh, a little. There's a little bit of. There's a little catch twenty two aspect that I remember. I worked. I did some packaging for Dryers Ice Cream. But in the beginning, when I first went there. Said, yeah, we love your work. Thanks for coming over. So, so do you have some ice cream packaging? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know I don't. I don't. He said, Yeah. How can you get ice cream packaging if you don't have any? Um, so, <laughs> it's a leap of faith on a client's part in the beginning. Now, if you get great people in a great project, like a wine label, and you want to get into the wine industry, then then take your the project. Um, it's amazing how this formula works out. If 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 I have really great people to work with and the budget is is uh, limitless, like just tell us what it's going to cost. Good people, chances are, is the project the project is you may not even get to put it in your portfolio. It's just something you have to get through with nice people and a lot of money. Uh, you know what I mean? Just divide <laughs> that, divide those three things up any way you. You want, and it, it typically works out. If you get all three things, and I have uh, a handful of clients over the years that are wonderful people, I pe- put people number one there. Great projects, and it's some of the best work you, you know you'll ever do. That's when you you know that's when you hit a home run. You know, it's not a grand slam, actually. I mean, it's those things. You have to. You even have to be able to recognize them in the beginning. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, um, and I'm, I'm interested in your opinion because uh, on something else. My guess is that some of your personal interests, what, you know, whether it's letterpress or or um, just master printers in general printmaking, if that ends up, you know, translating into your business reputation because of things that you're doing for personal interest, is that the case, or not as much, or
1: I, yeah, there's a halo effect on, on all that, and specifically the, you know, I had a One Heart Press letterpress shop for 21 years, and uh, the, the cool thing about having a letterpress shop, if you to have some crazy idea, is just go print it, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, so there's a design aspect, you can win awards and get your name out there, and even though mostly what we did was print for the design community. It was just such a cool thing to have, um, and the, yeah, and that rubbed that rubbed off on my design business. The printmaking—I've been printmaking etching since 1992, and the reason I started that was to get away from my real job. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of parameters, there's a lot of uh, you know hard fast. Guide, guidelines that we have to follow in order to sell things that's that's what it comes down to in your printmaking, you do you know you develop a language um, of your own and, and try to follow through with it and if people like it that's cool and if they don't who cares
2: it's,
1: <laughs> that, it's, it, it's that kind of uh, you know it fills your it fills that other that passion um, that side of yeah, uh, they are. They are without commerce. No.
0: There's, a, there's a book I love by Austin Kleon called "Steal Like an Artist. And he talks What's about "Steal like an artist. Huh. And he yeah. says, you like <laughs> get get over the idea that you're going to create stuff out of nothing. Everybody's influence. You know, their originality is just people who don't know how to source their they, they don't know how to cite their influences. Um, yeah. But he says that he talks about playing in a band. He's a poet. And he talks about why playing in a band for no other reason than the creativity of it is like such a benefit to his life and mm-hmm. how he used to think, no, I just got to focus. I just got to focus on my writing and I just got to write and that like how much has come out of like feeding the art side, feeding the passion side for by balancing out his life and making him happier. And then like him showing up as a more energized person for the, for the commerce side. And
1: uh, absolutely. Yep. Um,
0: but are there, art- Go ahead.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, it even something uh, as remote or uh, seemingly unconnected as beekeeping. I've, I've started, this will be my fourth summer keeping bees. I have oh, yeah. three hives. Yeah, I have three hives right now. Um, and watching bees and watching this society that they yeah that that they run the the way they do things the way there's a hierarchy in in terms of their their jobs and how those jobs change over their lifetime this, this society if we could only be half as is uh <laughs> as successful in society <laughs> as bees and as bees are and you know, and it's it's a good lesson. I mean, one bee, it just walk around in circles. It's just you know, there's nothing to do. It's like an ant. They're just aimless. But you, you put a colony together, they have very specific purpose with very specific jobs and goals and outcomes and and to do see what they have to do to produce the next generation. And they you know. It 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 makes you think. I'd love to go back and just sit and, and watch the bees, and um, depending on what season, you know, what they're doing, what they're how they're collaborating. Um, it, it, I'm sure that somehow that works its way back into my, the, you know, the way I consider what I do professionally.
0: Yeah. Um, it makes me think another book called autopilot that goes through how many of the greatest ideas in society and history have come up when somebody was on a walk or after they took a nap or when they weren't working on it, when their brain had the chance to process. And they've shown these fMRI machines that show like a different part of your brain that lights up when you sleep. And, um, I actually now you bring this up. I feel like Amy told me that uh, maybe I'm misremembering this. Are you part of like a beekeeping club or something like that? Is there like there's a group? A guild.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's this there's this geeky uh, beekeeping guild uh, in this county that, and they have a they have a uh, it's not really a blog. It's just a massive email thing where everybody writes in, and you can learn just by reading these things. But it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing. It's funny and entertaining and
0: have you met some interesting people <laughs> being a part of that
1: oh yeah and you know what they're they're uh, they're as strange as the stamp collecting community <laughs> and I also, I also oh, yeah. I also I also collect uh, antiquarian books over the years and it's the same crowd these people are all the same they're just as wacky as the beekeeping the beekeepers I went to an event the other night um Uh, Some They had a speaker from the the U.S. Geological Survey uh, organization in Washington, D.C., to come out and talk about um, the bee species in general. And when you look around the rooms, probably 200 people in the room. And I'll be 65, like I mentioned, later this month. My age lowered the average age in the room, (laughs) which doesn't happen very often. But it's those uh, it's those kind of people, it's just eccentric people, I'm sure, that have had all, all manner of, of professions.
0: So the, the antiquarian and, books, is it, because I don't know hardly anything about them, is it the study of collecting antiques or is it the book itself that's the antique?
1: Because it's, it's older. It's the book itself. Okay. It's, it's the book itself, no matter the, the subject matter. and But there are... You know, collectors that collect specific subject matters from certain dates and, you know, they can get very particular. Uh, It's not with me, Um, but I do have a massive collection of the Moby Dick novel, Hmm. um, which have been some just stunning pieces of Like how many many would you
0: guess in your collection?
1: Uh, Sixty, maybe, around there. Between, yeah, between 50 and 60. it's hard for me to find an edition now that I don't have already.
0: And so like how old and, will your older editions be?
1: Um, back back to the to the um, probably in the 20s and 30s there's a, there's and a lot of it is because of the artwork. the, mm. the artist Rockwell Rockwell Kent uh, illustrated a Lakewood press edition. It's a three volume edition that I have with uh, woodcuts. Um, and Rockwell Kent, I mean, I, you know, he's just, everybody knows him, he's just the world famous, he was an artist and did these woodcuts that are stunning in this book. They're just amazing. And I have one from Aryan Press that's probably, probably four, 35, 40 years old. Um, that's a, a large volume. It's probably four inches thick. It's all letterpress printed on handmade papers and Barry Mosier is the one that did the woodcuts uh, that illustrate the entire novel. It's it's stunning, phenomenal. Yeah. And again, I'm sure that those things get back into, in, into the recesses of my design brain, you know, somehow.
0: Yeah. Well, um, a couple of the questions we like to ask all our guests um, – besides those kind of books are there any business books or or design books that you think innovators today should be reading that you'd recommend
1: uh no okay (laughs) i mean there there are you know a thousand of them i think um maybe a million of them there's just so many so many places now where where you can get information and books there's these days it's it's limitless, and and the amount of important, interesting, uh, you know, information, whether it's a book or something else, is just limitless. Just find that it's not hard to find what you're passionate about and the very best version of it. Um, so that's what to do is just just find. I have some amazing old books, and they tend to be. Um, you know things that I'm interested in and graphic design of course that specifically there's there's some you know s- seminal books that th- every designer should have and you know we all know what they are it's it's, it's crazy for me to even mention anything about Paul Rand books or um, but I do make my students go l- look some of these people up and you know Bradbury Thompson and get some of his, um uh get some of his books from early on when he did the West Baco series. Uh it, it, you know, there's just phenomenal stuff out there that you that you can find. The young students tend not to read these days. They don't they don't even buy books. <laughs> Why buy one when you can go on issue and turn the pages on the screen? <laughs> but you know, but the West Baco Inspiration series that Bradbury Thompson did, there, there's, uh, it, it, um, uh, you know, I just you can just go on. Philip Meggs is. If you don't start there, start. That's the beginning. Just start there.
0: Okay. Well, for all the, all the non-designers listening, we'll put, we're, we'll put links to these on, uh, on the show notes page. Um, another, another question we always ask all the, all the different guests is, um, for our charity, child rescue, trying to prevent child sex trafficking and build this aftercare orphanage. We're expanding down in Cusco, Peru. Any advice you'd have for us about getting more people involved and attracting more people to want to care about taking care of kids?
1: Um in terms of what, oh, what marketing kind advice of contribution.
0: Yeah, it could be marketing advice or um anything that comes to mind.
1: And tell me again what your what the organization is.
0: Yeah, it's called child rescue and we're we're yeah. combating child sex trafficking. So like right now we're expanding an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru, um, where these victims mm-hmm. once the police uh recover them from raids or things like this, where they can come get real mm-hmm. care and deal with the PTSD and learn some, some career skills so they can actually have a job when they're ready to return back to the rest of society kind of thing?
1: Well, it seems to me you need to um, uh, put messages out to uh, gain the attention of donors, potential donors, and then people that want to, to come work or come volunteer for uh, because it's for some reason of particular interest. You know, I had Joey's do you know about Joey's Corner? No. Joey's Joey's Corner um, was, was a nonprofit design organization that I started in what was it, two thousand and four. My son passed away at the time. He was twenty four years old and um uh, and it was accidental unexpected death and when you know a tragedy happens in your life it's hard it's it's, it's, number one it's just hard to maintain and number two to in order to maintain you can often put your energy into um, something that you that you care about that is related to that tragedy so I, I had always wanted to wondered what it would be like to to do to start to open a, a design studio that did only um, work for nonprofit organizations and would do it pro bono as often as, as possible. Um, so and it lasted. I just closed it. We had it. I had Joey's Corner for ten years. Wow! And worked worked with you know just amazing amazing organizations and the people. That are there they're they're doing the most important work in in the world they don't get paid a lot of money um, their budgets are low e- every board meeting every inch of earth, the upper management's um, energy goes toward you know fundraising gathering donors it's 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 even competitive I mean the, the competition for for the nonprofits profits are fighting for donors the donor money because there's so many places now that um are worthy that the donors really have to pick and choose something that's close to their close to their heart and and become a fan of and they can't do it if they don't know about you so the, the materials the job the tools that we produce as graphic designers it is not something that these organizations are have been traditionally really good at um, they haven't till I don't know in the last even five or ten years even since we started haven't really understood the power of what it is we do as designers and they, it's starting to change that young people that are getting into some of the administrative, uh, the, the positions um, the millennials certainly understand this, and if someone's right out of business school or right out of college and wants to dedicate their, you know, their life to nonprofit for some reason. If it's cancer research, and had a grandparent and I have cancer, or whatever the reason is, that they're typically a little bit more knowledgeable these days than in the past, where somebody's mother's brother's cousin's son who. Is an art, quote unquote, major did the logo. Um, that's the kind of situations we would get pulled into, and and I had several. We had several clients, non profits that uh, over the years we would we worked with, and just went up one side and down the other of their organization in terms their 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 brand is creating a brand and all the materials that go with it. Including, you know, just all their outreach programs, their fundraising programs, a website. I mean, you we met so many organizations that didn't even have a, a website, had no idea what to, what to do there. Um, so anyway, it's and these days they have. There's so many opportunities for to reach out to donors and to reach out to to uh, volunteers and get people involved um and that's what we did i just met the most incredible people during that during the time of joey's corner
0: that's great well um before we finish up here um any thought that you have for people who really you know they want to aspire to the top of their craft specifically in graphic design you know with with the proliferation of you know anybody can buy adobe photoshop and illustrator and you know, some guy, some guy in his computer can print up a business card and call themselves a graphic designer. Um, and any thoughts about, you know, advice for those that really want to reach the the highest levels that, of of design capabilities? That you know, they need the persistence, mm-hmm. they need to put in the yeah. hours. What, what what would you say besides hard Not work? Besides funny, hard right? work.
1: <laughs> besides hard work. Okay. Well, I was I was going to say that's funny. I just had this. A similar com- conversation with a friend the other day, and and you, you know what he said was, just, um, you just simply have to work harder than everybody else. And no matter if you, you know, let's put if you say let's put that aside. Well, we can, but you you can't put it aside until you mention it. That's <laughs> number one is just to stay focused and work harder than anyone. That. But you have to you you have to love what you do before you can do that. There's so many people that are just putting in the time, or they make good money, or not really. You know, it's like nine to five. And um, if you're truly passionate about what you're doing, it's not like it's it's kind of not like work. It's just what you do, and it's not hard to work harder than the, the next person. And and often, you know, most of the time you don't even realize it. It's just it's just what you do, and um, and that'll come if you ha- if you're working where you're passionate. It, um, the other thing that I would put in there because of because of all the mistakes I've made doing things that I'm not good at is to surround yourself with brilliant people that do you know absolutely necessary uh, tasks in a bit, your business, in a business, that you can't do. So I have always had um, a sales and marketing person. I always had uh, designers that were former students that I knew. I knew the person, the design is one thing, but the people that you bring in is just as important, maybe even more important, who those people are. Um, I have had, uh, you know, after that story I told you, after that point, I've had really good accountants and financial overseers. Um, in recent years, the last probably 15 years, I started needing a project manager because things you know, the bigger the clients, the more complicated the project, the more stuff there's to keep track of, yikes, that's not me. So I would would surround myself with brilliant people that that, uh, would do their job and would free me up to do what I do best, and that's design and work with the designers and keep that part of the business um, as fine-tuned as as possible. You can't do that without the rest of the people, by the way, so... You now, that's the other thing, at least in my industry, is is just to surround yourself with brilliant people. Yeah,
0: you know, um, I think I only talk in books, but it reminds me of this book called Strength Finders, which is kind of the argument of Michael Jordan didn't make a lot of money playing baseball. He made a lot of money playing basketball. So figure mm-hmm. out what your basketball is, double down on that, and get the other team members who, where their basketball is the parts that you don't cover, the other side of the spectrum, right?
1: Yeah, that's the that's it that's a that's the sports analogy to what i was just talking about i think
0: yeah well well this is great we really appreciate you making time for us for the show today
1: oh it's good it was good fun it's great fun i love talking about these stories and in case you didn't notice i could do it for quite a while
0: and that's the show thanks for listening today Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co childrescue. Now's is the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at The Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more
2: doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.